Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. When our kids were little, Kathy had a dress-up box. And if I remember correctly, it was a big yellow suitcase. Every child likes to play dress-up. In the dress-up box, Kathy had hard hats and fireman helmets and baseball uniforms for the boys and lots of cowboy garb, chaps and boots and holsters. Zach would put on his little tie and get his little mini briefcase. He was headed off to work like dad. For Natalie, there was a ballet tutu and a tiara for every princess needs a tiara. She also had a lab coat and a stethoscope. She could... Be a nurse like her mom. Natalie spent hours putting on and putting off her mock wedding dress, dreaming of a future day when she would walk the aisle and break her daddy's heart. Many hours were spent putting on and putting off clothes from that dress-up box. It stirred their young imaginations. Our children could try on new identities. Hey, when you're not sure who you are, or maybe you don't like who you are. Or maybe you're thinking of who you might can become one day. It's nice for a brief time to be whatever you want to be. And here's how I want to title this morning's study. The final verses in chapter 4. The Christian's dress-up box. For Paul is encouraging you and me. Now that we're in Christ, we have a new identity. And we should see ourselves differently. We're no longer the person we once were. In Christ, we're blessed and chosen and adopted and accepted and redeemed and forgiven and sealed with the Holy Spirit. And it's time for us to begin to dress up accordingly. 
A victorious Christian dresses for success. Our spiritual wardrobe, our attitude, our mindset, our outlook, our habits, how we see ourselves should match the inheritance we've been given in Christ. And in these last verses, Paul reaches into the Christian's dress-up box, pulls out life, and begins to instruct us, put this on and take this off. Hey, you need to put this on and you need to take this off. This is how we grow as Christians. We learn what's appropriate attire, what we need to put on and what we need to put off. Paul lists for the believer behaviors that will ultimately either undermine or reinforce our new life in Christ. And he begins in verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. It may surprise you, but you can tell a lot about a person by the way they walk. Years ago, I read of a professor named Sarah Snodgrass of Skidmore College who had done some scholarly research to decipher the language of walking. She linked motor skills to personality traits. She found that usually people who waddle are impulsive and independent. People who drag their feet along tend to be sad and frustrated. A stride is often indicative of a person who's bold and confident. A person on tiptoes is often bashful and insecure. And a person who shuffles, they can be unorganized and lazy. Now, obviously, this isn't an exact science. You have to take into account corns and blisters and ingrown toenails and hemorrhoids and pregnancies. That affects how you walk. But generally speaking, your gait is one gateway to your character. And this is especially true spiritually. Of course, when Paul speaks of a person's walk, he's not thinking of their motor skills, but their lifestyle. It's not how we move our feet, but it's how we move through life. It's about how we see ourselves and how we treat others and how we navigate life. Most importantly, it's about how we relate to God. And the first thing that Paul says is we should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Now, in the Old Testament, from God's vantage point, there were really only two categories of people. There were Jews and there were Gentiles, which was everyone else. But with the coming of Christ, as we've talked about before, a third race was born. Just like their friends and relatives, the Ephesian believers were Gentiles. But now they were of a different breed. They were now Christians, the third race. Spiritually, they had been born again. They now had a new nature, a new love, a new hope, a new power, new ties with a new community. They were no longer like the rest of the Gentiles. What if I spent big bucks to purchase a purebred dog? A dog with an impeccable pedigree. He had papers and a bloodline. He was registered with the Canine Society. Do you think I would let that dog run with the pack? Hang out with all the Heinz 57s, the mongrel dogs? Of course not. You don't treat a registered dog like the rest of the dogs. And this is how Paul sees us as Christians. We are purebred. We have a new nature, a new love and loyalty to Jesus Christ. 
We are part of an exclusive bloodline. We have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, and we're registered. Did you know that? In heaven, your name is in the Lamb's book of life. You got papers, and you didn't even know it. We're not like the rest of the Gentiles. And just as you would never allow a pedigreed pooch to run with the pack, God doesn't want us to run with this evil world. He says, don't walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Hey, this is why the excuse, well, everybody else is doing it. This is why that excuse is so lame. We're not like everybody else. We're of a different stock, bought at the highest price. Imagine your purebred pup asking, why can't I play in the garbage like the other junkyard dogs? Or, other dogs get fleas, why can't I? Yet this is how Christians are acting when they fail to live a holy life and blend in with the crowd, when they don't see themselves in Christ. Hey, many Christians don't realize how special they've become. Hey, do you remember the story of the ugly duckling? The ugly duck was really a beautiful swan, but it got separated at birth and was bound to a mother duck. His siblings made fun of him and his peculiar traits. Every day that ugly duck would gaze across the pond at the gorgeous swans and wish that he could be a swan. That is until one day the ugly duckling glanced at a reflection in the edge of the water and realized that he was a swan after all. And for the rest of the day, his days, he would be who and what God had made him, a beautiful swan. And this is what we need to realize, that we're not like the rest of the Gentiles, that we're different and we should act like it. Let's be what God has called us to be and made us to be. And in this morning's text, Paul tells us how. First, he gives us some walking styles to avoid. He begins in verse 17. In the futility of their mind, or literally empty-headed. Their life is void of any overarching purpose. The person without Christ is on a wild goose chase, and there's no goose. It's all about searching, but never finding. You see, without Jesus, people are like pinballs. They bounce from paddle to paddle. Their life has no master plan, like the bumper sticker, don't follow me, I'm lost too. A life that's empty-headed, that has no transcendent purpose, will also be cold and empty-hearted. C.S. Lewis described the Christless world as, I quote, a land where it's winter all year, but never Christmas. In other words, there's nothing meaningful to break up the bleak. Our world isn't short on pleasures and promises, that's for sure. Drugs and money and sex and fame all come with the promise of fulfillment. And yet all they yield is drabness. In verse 22, Paul refers to them as, quote, deceitful pleasures. See, the pleasures of this world, they promise peace and joy and community, but inevitably they disappoint. Apart from Jesus, nothing satisfies and fills the hollowness. The Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened. Imagine living life blindfolded or always in a heavy mist, never able to see clearly, always having your vision obscured. Boy, a lot can blur our vision and our understanding, can it? An alcoholic wants more. A sex addict wants different. Even anger blurs our judgment. 
An organization, Mothers Against Angry Drivers, says that you drive 20 miles per hour faster when you're mad. Revenge and jealousy also distort our perspective and cause rash decisions. You know, it's really scary to think how many impulsive choices are made without any forethought at all. Actually, all kinds of sin can blur our understanding. For sin separates us from God. Paul tells us in verse 18, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. You see, turn your back on God, and morally and spiritually, your visibility is zero. Your heart becomes blind, like a pilot who loses his instruments while flying in a fog bank. He has no bearings now, no communication with the tower. He's disoriented, and he's destined to crash. For a person without God, life is a jigsaw puzzle with no box top. You have no idea what the completed puzzle should look like. Thus, life makes no sense. Sin alienates us from God and keeps us in the dark. But that's only for starters. We're also told in verse 19, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness and greediness. You see, sin also creates a a hardness, a spiritual callousness. In high school, I played a lot of basketball. So much so that the bottoms of my feet were one big callus. When the season began, I had these aching blisters. But by the final game, the blisters had calloused over. The soles of my feet were so tough, you could prick them with a pin and I wouldn't feel it. And what happened to the soles of my feet can also occur in a human soul. We can harden our hearts over and over until we're, quote, past feeling. We're no longer touched by the needs around us. Our conscience becomes muted. We grow deaf and insensitive to the calling and convicting whispers of the Holy Spirit. There's a poem I'd like to read you by Lois Chaney. It goes, once a boy cheated on a test. He got a good grade and passed the course. He told his friends, I had no choice. Later as a man, he took a job that denied another's need, but the money was good. And he had his family to think of, and he told a friend, I had no choice. Later, the man denied his calling and chose a different role that made him famous, and he became well thought of. He told a friend, I had no choice. Later, the man reviewed his life before God, the Almighty God. He shrugged his shoulders as he told God, I had no choice. And God said to the man as he turned his back and walked away, I have no choice. See a life blurred by sin and alienated from God and ignorant and blind to the truth of God grows more and more calloused until one day that life is judged by God. Paul says a callous life has been given over to lewdness and uncleanness and greediness. Here's a person who sins with no shame. They sin for shock effect or to attract attention or maybe to sell tickets or maybe to make money. This is the person who makes no attempt to hide their sin. It's flaunted. It's outed. They push the limits of decency. Here's a Miley Cyrus attitude. A person out to prove she can be just as crass as she wants to be. This is the gambler who stoops to stealing from his family. This is the addict who hits the streets for his fix. This is the hothead who makes a scene or hits his wife. His problem is no longer a secret. 
He's now out of control and consequences seem to be no longer a deterrent. And you see, this is the way the rest of the Gentiles walk. It's a slippery slope. Turning from God to blurring the lines to hardening the heart to living in shame. Verse 20, though, brings some hope. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. As Christians, we know better than to walk this path. When we sin, we repent. We keep our hearts open to God. We keep our hearts soft. We avoid what's shameful. This is how we learned Christ. And you've got to love the language here. Understand, this is exclusively Christian lingo. No one ever says, as you have learned Buddha or learned Mohammed, I can learn the teachings of Buddha, but how can I learn Buddha? He's been dead for 2,500 years. This is a reminder that Christianity isn't just following a creed or a code or a set conduct. We follow Christ. Hey, Paul is writing to a people who were living 600 miles and 30 years from Jesus' crucifixion. And yet they knew the living Lord. They had even taught, been taught by Christ. Christianity is a relationship with Jesus. It's his life in me. Only Christians can say, we've learned Christ. And Jesus has taught us a better way to walk. Here's where we need to dress up. Verse 22, put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. I mean, if you're going out for a jog, you don't wear a suit or high heels. You don't wear clothing that restricts your movement or hurts your feet. You wear appropriate attire. You wear shorts and sneakers. And this is true with a Christian's walk. You go to the dress-up box and you dress yourself with attitudes that are fitting for a life of faith and holiness. And this is what Paul tells us to do in verse 23. He says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. You take off the old attitudes and you put on a new attitude, a new identity, a new outlook. You see, when we came to Christ, we were made new, a new creation on the inside. Spiritually, you were born again. And with the new birth came new loves and desires and ambitions. But you see, we were a diamond in the rough. We were a sunrise behind the smog. On the inside, we were new. But on the outside, our thoughts and our language and our habits, in many ways, still reflected the old life. Jesus changes us on the inside, but now we need a new wardrobe. We need to put on some godly garb. We need to change the outside of the cup. Now, I realize that some old habits die hard. Patterns are difficult to break. The lag time between what happens when we become Christians and when it shows up in our conduct and character can be painfully slow. For years, I, I drove a car with a standard transmission. And when I changed to an automatic, it took months for me to stop reaching for the stick. Some habits linger even after their reason, the reason for them has long since passed. And this is true in our outlook and in our behavior. And you see, this is why we need to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. 
When my kids played in the dress-up box, it gave them an opportunity to try on new identities. They could be a princess or a cowboy if just for a day. The act of putting on and putting off, putting on and putting off, gave my kids an opportunity to feel different, to look different. They could imagine being someone one day that they hoped to be. And this is what putting on and putting off does in our relationship with God. When you take off what you learned while alienated from God, and then you put on what you've seen in Christ, how you see yourself in Christ, dedicated to God, it starts to make you feel different. You put on a new identity. You develop a new outlook. And this isn't a pretend identity. It's not imaginary. You are affirming indeed what God has done in your heart. This is how faith works. Jesus died to give us a new identity, but we don't feel it at first until we spend time in the dress-up box, putting on and putting off. You recall when Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave. The man had been dead for four days. His corpse was decomposing. In fact, Mary warned, but he stinketh. I love that verse. Yet when Jesus called Lazarus front and center, the corpse obeyed. Lazarus bounded out into the mouth of the grave, standing there, still encased in his shroud. You see, he had new life, but he was still wearing grave clothes. And this is our portrait. When Jesus saves us, he raises us to new life. But we're wearing the old identity and the old attitudes that went with it. We need to put off the old, and we need to put on the new. See yourself as Christ sees you and swap grave clothes for grace clothes. This is what Augustine did. At one time, he was far from a Christian. He was living with a woman. He had born a son out of wedlock. One day after his conversion, his former mistress saw him on the street and ran his way. She shouted, Augustine, it is I. It is I. And that's when this new believer, Augustine, took off in the opposite direction, shouting over his shoulder, yes, but it's not I. It's not I. He had put off the old man, and he had put on the new. He was now living a new identity and a new purpose. Augustine was renewed in the spirit of his mind. And this is how we need to become. Putting off is shedding those old habits. Putting on is adding new habits that reinforce my identity in Christ. You see, each time I think or I act, a rut is carved into my personality so that it becomes easier to think and act in that same way again. Over time, the rut becomes larger and deeper until it takes over. Rather than be shaped by my thoughts, it now becomes a channel for my thoughts. One day I wake up and I find the rut is now the rudder. Put it this way. We first make our habits, but then our habits make us. And the job of putting off and putting on is ditching those old habits and developing new habits. And when this is done repeatedly, it creates in us a new attitude, a new identity. And in these last eight verses of chapter 4, Paul gives the Ephesians some specific habits that they need to develop. Verse 25, therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Notice it's putting away lying, lying, and it's putting on honesty. 
It's not just taking off a wrong attitude, but it's adopting the right attitude. Once there was a farmer, he wanted to stop folks from stealing watermelons from his field. And so he posted a sign near a gate that read, one of these melons is poisonous. But the plan backfired. For a few days later, the sign was replaced by one that read, two of these melons are poisonous. And because the farmer didn't know which one was the second melon, he lost his whole crop. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Honesty is always the best policy. And notice the reason Paul gives for honest relationships. He says, for we are members of one another. Hey, if we can come clean before God and he's willing to accept us just as we are, then we should be willing and able to open up to each other and extend that same acceptance. You know, since the Garden of Eden, mankind has tried to hide our sin. Adam and Eve launched a fig leaf cover-up. But God wanted them to come out in the open, out from the bushes, be honest about what they'd done. And now when we come clean, God cleanses us. And here's another positive habit to put on, verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Hey, notice we're commanded here to be angry. For some of us, this is a surprise that there is an appropriate kind of anger, that it has its place. Think of Jesus. He was perfect, yet he still got angry. You remember the anger of Jesus. It bowled over in the synagogue there in Capernaum. He wanted to heal a man with a crippled hand, but legalistic Jews forbid healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus was angry that they put law above love and tradition over people. Mark 3 verse 5 tells us, So when Jesus had looked around at them in anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Jesus also got angry in the temple. Twice he ran out the money changers. Once with a homemade whip he made himself. Once with his bare knuckles. Hey, the idea that God wants Christians to be wallflowers and namby-pambies couldn't be further from the truth. There's nothing spiritual about being sissy. God wants believers who are tempered with appropriate passion. Jesus takes away our sin, not our backbone. When it comes to unrighteousness and hypocrisy and injustice, especially our own, we need to get mad. We should get angry and then use that passion for good. It's interesting, often we get angry when we're mistreated. But Jesus loved his enemies. They nailed him to the cross. But rather than anger, he prayed for their pardon. No, Jesus always got angry for the right reasons. It was Aristotle who said, anyone can become angry, but to be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right reason and in the right way, this is not easy. Well, Paul tells us be angry. And do not sin. And then verse 26, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Be angry at sin. Be passionate about what's right. But at the end of the day, try to settle your differences. Don't go to bed cuddled up with anger. You know, most forest fires start with a simple spark or smoldering ash that could have easily been put out. But it was given time to flame up. And it burned out of control. And the same is true with anger. Don't let it smolder. 
It'll flare up and do great damage. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 25, agree with your adversary quickly. In marriage or friendship or church, let unresolved anger linger and somebody will eventually get burned. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath and then we're told, nor give place to the devil. It literally reads, don't give the devil an opportunity. Years ago now, Kathy got a phone call from some company promising us a free prize if we allowed a salesman to come by the house and give his sales pitch for a vacuum cleaner. She really wanted this prize. The only catch was that both spouses had to be home. Well, I hate sales pitches. I'd rather be at the dentist. <laughs> and yet somehow Kathy talked me into it. But I was determined, man. I went in with, a, with a, my attitude set in steel. No matter how good this salesman was, I didn't have money for a vacuum cleaner. There's no way, no way, Jose, am I buying a vacuum cleaner from this guy. And I'll never forget the guy. I mean, this guy had an S on his chest, super salesman. And his vacuum cleaner, according to him, it could fix meals and rock the kids to sleep at night. I'll never forget at the end of the presentation, I was getting out my checkbook, and it was Kathy who had to stop me from buying the cleaner. <laughs> and guess what? Satan is also a super salesman. Hey, if he can get one foot in the door, he can sell you on his schemes. Realize that Satan has no code of ethics. He'll lie. He'll exaggerate. He'll embellish. He'll tell you what you want to hear. If he can just gain a hearing, a foot in the door, he's got you. Just start toying with temptation. Just start nibbling at his bait. And sadly, he's got you hooked. This is why when Satan knocks on your door, let Jesus answer. Don't give the devil an opportunity. I've heard Christians, some Christians say, I have a terrible problem with lust. And every time I pick up a Playboy magazine, well, or I struggle with alcohol. Every time I walk in a bar, the desire returns. Well, I mean, how naive can we be? If we want to put on the new man and put off the old man, we can't afford to give place to the devil. And there's more dressing up to do. Verse 28, put off, let him who stole steal no longer. But then put on, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Again, it's not just stop stealing. It's also get a job and learn to work hard and make enough money so that you can bless others. The thief goes from burglar to a blessing. He's a Christian now. He's putting on a new identity. The man goes from the thrill of the heist to the thrill of the help. He takes joy now in giving to someone in need. And then he says, and let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. You know, whenever I travel to other parts of the country, it doesn't take long for people to figure out that I'm from the South. Y'all know why. <laughs> Once I open my mouth and a Southern accent comes out, people know. 
And it should be just as easy for folks to identify us as Christians. For as soon as we open our mouths, they should know us by our grace-filled, encouraging words. Rather than corrupt, our conversation builds up. And then verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is a huge verse. To build a new identity in Christ, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. And the last thing we want to do is to grieve him or quench him. These are two sins talked about in the New Testament. Quenching the Spirit is to neglect what God desires. It's our failure to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Whereas grieving the Spirit is to do what God forbids. It's our disobedience. And both are serious sins that we should avoid. But notice this word grieve. I think it's important. It's a love word. You know, I don't have to love you for you to make me mad or to get me angry or disappointed or impatient. But only a person I love can grieve me. Grief is a wound to the heart. And it's because the Holy Spirit loves us so much and has such high hopes for us that we can cause him great grief by our unwillingness to follow his lead. And then verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Nothing grieves God's spirit more than when his people refuse to get along. When they get bitter or go ballistic or speak slanderous words. Notice this list begins with bitterness. It refers to a long-standing resentment, a deep-seated hatred. You know, most of our bad attitudes begin with unresolved bitterness. Reminds me of the artist Leonardo da Vinci. He was working on his most famous painting, The Last Supper. Da Vinci had a falling out with a fellow painter there in town. And he retaliated by painting his enemy's face into the face of Judas. Everyone at the time knew this man. And Leonardo's artistry would immortalize him as a treacherous Judas. But when Leonardo went to work on the face of Jesus, he hit that creative wall. His inspiration left him. It wasn't until he had gone back and erased the face of his enemy that his inspiration returned for him to paint the face of Jesus. If we're to be like Christ, the first thing that has to be put off is bitterness, wrath, clamor, evil speaking. And then Paul says, be kind to one another. I mean, kindness is treating each other with grace, extending undeserved favor to your friends. And when we act graciously, it reinforces the grace we've received. It helps us put on the new man, just as it does to be tenderhearted. Jesus was God, yet he wanted to, us to know and to, he wanted to know and to share in our plight. And thus God became a man. He got down on our level. What a tender-hearted act. And this is our example. It's so easy to judge a brother before we've walked a mile in his shoes. We get a different picture when we're sensitive to a situation. That old Sandy I'm putting off was thin-skinned and hard-hearted. Whereas that new Sandy I'm putting on that I've learned in Christ is tender-hearted. And then Paul says, forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. One year, the men of our church, we 
went whitewater rafting down the Chattooga River. And one of us wanted to start a water fight. I won't say which one it was. But one of us wanted to start a water fight with the other boat. But our God was reluctant. He didn't want to stir up any friction. He didn't want to cause any hard feelings with the other boaters. And I'll never forget, that's when Tracy Waters, he was in the back of our boat. He shouted out. He said, ah, don't worry. Those guys are Christians. They've got to forgive us. <laughs> and you know, I'm not sure about Tracy's application, but his theology was biblical, that's for sure. For as a Christian, how can we not forgive a brother when Jesus has so abundantly forgiven us? You know, if Paul had left off these last seven words in Ephesians chapter 4, then we would have found a loophole, wouldn't we? Some kind of rationale to hold on to our grudge, to remain bitter, to not forgive. We'd read it, forgiving one another but, forgiving one another if, forgiving one another unless, forgiving one another until, or when, or once, or after. But that last phrase of the verse removes all excuses. Forgiving even as God in Christ forgave you. As a new you in Christ Jesus, we should forgive one another just as fully and just as freely as Jesus has forgiven us. I want to end this morning's lesson with a quote from John Knox. John Knox said this about Jesus. Other gods have been as devoutly worshipped, but no other God has been so devoutly loved. You know, worshipers of Jesus, they want to be like him. They love him so much, they want to be like him. They want to put on and put off and even dress like Jesus. Let's not walk like the rest of the Gentiles. Let's follow Jesus.